Well, when you listen to the wrong voices, you start making bad choices, and you end up in sorry places. And uh, that, that's where we began last week, and we be- looked at Psalm chapter 1. Now, we're looking at how to thrive, and, and the big picture, we're looking at passages of Scripture that help all of us learn how to thrive as followers of Jesus Christ. So that's the big picture. Uh, but then we're making specific application to marriage and to our relationships, okay? So big picture, all, it applies to every follower of Jesus. How can we thrive as a follower of Christ? Well, Psalm 1 uh, begins by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But blessed is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's thriving. Okay, so we get to the thriving when we avoid what verse 1 is talking about. Verse 1 tells us that when we listen to the wrong voices, we start making bad choices, and we end up in sorry places. But if, on the other hand, we have a zeal and passionate pursuit of God, we stay close to Him, and we delight ourselves also in Him, then He will lead us to a flourishing life. All right, that was last week. Today, we begin looking at the hard stuff of this journey. Now, last week was just introduction. It's just big picture. Today, we start the hard part of the journey, and that is pruning. In order for any plant to to thrive, if you have a tree, I I have crepe myrtles. For them to thrive, i got to cut off the wild limbs that are, that are always growing. They get some wild kind of limbs. And, and for it to grow in a way that flourishes in the way that I've designed it to or desire it to, I have to prune it. And uh, we know that to be true. You've got to prune things. You've got to cut the dead off. You have to shape it and form it so that it grows in the way that it was intended and bears the most fruit. Well, the same thing is true for our life, and the same thing is true Uh, as followers of Christ, but also in our marriage. There are things that need to be pruned. In Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at this pruning process. There are things in your life that need to be pruned. There are things in my life that need to be pruned. Uh, They need to be removed, taken away. Now, as we're looking at this, remember how we're going to do this. It's distinctively different for me, but it may not seem any different to you. It may not make any difference to you, but it's like killing me because it's so different. What I'm doing is I'm taking the text and the big picture of the text, and we're going to walk through the text and and just talk about what it meant back then with some application for what it means today. And then we're going to make specific application toward the end, uh, specifically as it relates to how we should respond to God's Word in our marriages and in our relationships. All right, so as we're looking at that, at the pruning, uh, the very first thing that we need to do is begin where Paul does. Therefore, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, uh, if you have been raised with Christ, uh, uh, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things below, for you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God, in God with Christ. Um, When Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall also appear with him in glory. In those four verses, Paul sets the stage for what he's about to uh, throw down on us in verses 5 through 11. 
Uh, he's getting ready to throw it down on us, by the way. It's, it's going to hurt. If you listen to it, if you allow the word to speak to your heart, it's going to hurt. Uh, and it's going to hurt because you're a follower of Christ. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can just kind of ignore this and act like it doesn't matter. And some of you are pretending to be followers of Christ because you're in church and, and you know, uh, you've, you've uh, embraced that principle that uh, uh, if I sit in a garage, then I become a car. And so if you're sitting in a church, you become a, a follower of Christ. It doesn't hardly work that way. There's more pro- parts to that journey. Uh, but some of you are here and and you're not a follower of Christ, so this stuff, you're like, well, it's no big deal. But if you are a follower of Christ, and you know, here's the deal. This is going to hurt. Because if, if, if we're not stubborn, if we're not prideful, uh, if, if we allow the Word of God to speak to us, then it's going to hurt us. Okay? So what does Paul do? Well, in verses 1 through 4, he gives the foundation for what, what we need to be doing. Uh, in verses 5 through 11, he gives us the hard part, which is the pruning. And then verses 12 through 17, he gives us the easy part, well, the easier part, which is what we're supposed to be planting. Originally, I designed this to be one sermon, verses 1 through 17. And then this morning, I realized that the, I, that would have been insane because y'all would be here for an hour and a half. Uh, we just couldn't get through all 17 verses. So next week, we're going to look at the fun part or the, the, the easier part, which is Mother's Day. By the way, next week is Mother's Day. Woo! Celebrate, celebrate. Next week is Mother's Day, and we'll look at verses, uh, verses 12 through 17. Today, we're going to look at, at uh, 1 through 11. All right, so Paul sets the stage, and what does that stage mean for us? It is simply this statement. To thrive, you've got to pursue Christ's pleasure above all things. If you're going to thrive, it's not going to be because you get what you want. If you're going to thrive in life, in marriage, in relationship, in this church, it's not going to be because you get what you want. Now, that's why most churches die, by the way. The reason most churches die is because somewhere along the way, we forgot that the most important thing is not what you want, nor is it what I want, but it's what God wants. Somewhere along the way, we started trying to make you happy rather than make Christ happy, and everything dies when that's the journey. See, the truth is, this church will thrive whether you're happy or not, whether I'm happy or not, as long as Christ is happy. But the minute we decide that we're not going to pursue Christ's pleasure and we're going to be bound to these earthly things of making you happy or me happy, then the church begins to die and decline. Do you see what Paul says? Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ and with God in Christ. And Paul is saying very specifically that we must pursue what Jesus wants. Set your mind on things above. We need to pursue, seek, have as our guiding principle the pleasure of Christ. Paul said it differently in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He said it differently, but the principle is the same. Paul wrote, therefore we make it our aim, whether present on this earth or absent up in heaven, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him to whom we must give an account. See, Jesus is our life. 
I'm not your life. You're not my life. Jesus is our life. And so we must live for his pleasure. This applies to the church. It applies to our everyday life. See, here's here's what really gets messed up in marriages. I, I, I mean, I've got five women in my house. And all the competing pleasures that happen in that house. You see, five women means that there are five different people to please in a particular way. And sometimes the pleasing of the one leads to the displeasure of the other. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. But Mallory wants something, and I say yes, but that makes Maggie upset. So I change what I said, and I try to make ha- Maggie happy, but that makes Elizabeth upset. And, and then I try to make uh, Elizabeth happy, but then Maggie's upset, and Elizabeth's happy. But Emily Catherine gets upset because of what I did. And so and then I've got, then I've got uh, Emily Catherine happy, but Elizabeth upset, and Maggie upset, and Mallory upset, all because I tried to please, please Mallory at the beginning, and then Maggie, and then Elizabeth, and then Emily Catherine. And then I turn around, and Edie's upset, and then Mama ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy, and I'm in trouble. (laughs) What would Jesus do? Thank you, Stan, for the Jesus juke. I know what Jesus would do. Jesus says, stop trying to make all of them happy and start trying to make me happy. See, that's the difference. And I, I, I understand the trouble of that. I understand the, the difficulty of that. But it doesn't change the truth of that. If I'm pursuing the things above, if I'm pursuing what pleases Christ, then it will eventually, whether they understand it or not, it will eventually lead to their greater pleasure. I am a better husband when I live for Christ's pleasure. I'm a better dad when I live for Christ's pleasure. I'm a better pastor when I live for Christ's pleasure, whether it makes you happy or not. See, the, the bottom line for us in, in all of our relationships, and Paul wrote this for the church and people living in relationship with each other in the church, and he began, he said, you want to thrive, you better, you better make Christ smile. Stop worrying about all these other things. Stop worrying about all the expectations that swirl around you that make you do things that are a little bit insane. Do you realize that we get in trouble? We get in trouble in our our walk with Christ because we're trying to please other people. The the thing that that many times will lead us off the cliff into our our sin is that we're trying to please other people. And and maybe the biggest culprit of the people we're trying to please is ourselves. Do you realize that when you live for your own pleasure, you're going to be in trouble? You're going to be in trouble. Paul was saying, set your mind, set your heart, set your pursuit, set your goal on this one thing. The pleasure of Jesus Christ. You go all the way down to verse 17. We'll look at this next week. You go all the way down to verse 17. Paul writes, he says, So whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know what he said? He said, everything you do, everything you say has the stamp of Jesus Christ on it. And the question is, are you honoring the name of Christ by what you say? And by what you do. Are are you honoring the name of Jesus Christ by what you say? 
and by what you do. The, 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 the honor of Christ, the pleasure of Christ, has to be the filter through which we talk to one another, through, through which we, we relate to one another, and we, we, through which what we do. But friends, let me tell you something. Some of us are so bound up in what we want that we don't really care what Jesus wants, and we wonder why it is we're so miserable and toxic inside. It's because we've lost this first principle. Again, please understand, this is the Bible. This is not my opinion, this is the Bible. Colossians chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Again, if then you were raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your mind on things above, not the things of this earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also appear with him in glory. Are you ready for that glorious encounter? It's hard to taste the joy of heaven when you're living like hell on earth. Today, oh, and by the way, just because you're in church doesn't mean you're not living like hell on earth. Today, <laughs> today, let's, so let's look and see what we need to stop. Okay, that's the pruning process. All right, Paul lays out the, the pursuit principle, the pleasure principle. He, he lays that out to begin with so that he can, he can tell us the hard stuff of pruning. Okay, so here's the printing. Now, I've got to tell you, this is tough. This is tough. It's not easy. It's not easy to talk about. It's not easy to preach. It's not easy to preach to you, but I believe it's necessary. I believe it's necessary because it's God's word, but I don't know if you're going to receive it. And, and I, honestly, I, I can't take ownership for that. that. That's between you and God. All I can do is deliver. Okay, and I hope you receive because if you receive, then you'll thrive. But if you reject it, you're just taking one more step into a withered life. All right? I have to receive it, too. But I've had like seven days to get on it, right? And so uh, this, is, this is brand new for you. All right, so, so Colossians 3. Now let's look, begin verse 5. What, what, is, what is the journey that Paul is taking us on? If we're going to set our mind on things above, we're going to seek Christ who is above, then what's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to get us to prune the toxic out of our life. Uh, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, um, Therefore, put to death, that means kill, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Let's just stop there. Uh, Paul lists toxic things. Now, the reason I say toxic is because these are the things that kill us and kill our relationships, kill our marriages. Now, in the next few minutes, I'm going to talk in uh, specific generalities. As it reminds me of a little ditty, you know, one bright, bright day in the middle of the night, two dead men got up to fight back to back. They faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. Um, y'all will catch up with that. Y'all might have to listen to that later. But anyway, uh, there are things that I want to say that I cannot say. There are words that I should say that I can't say because of the nature of our gathering, right? So as I talk in generality, I'm going to try to be as specific as I possibly can about these specific issues, 
All right? So as we look at the things we are to prune, we need to begin with the one broad category of uh, we need to prune uh, death-dealing desires. Death-dealing desires, that's the first list that we see in verse 5. There are five specific death-dealing desires. The first one is immorality. The Greek term is pornia. Moving on. So the second, uh, the second list, or the second uh, uh, death-dealing desire is um, a filthy mind. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the junk that arises in our mind and, and leads to a, a, a filthy, uh, focused soul. It's where we are pursuing uncleanness, all, all the things that are displeasing to God. Um, and, and there are overtones that are tied to the first, care, uh, first uh, desire. Uh, so we have uh, that the first desire, pornaya, and the second desire, acatharsis. Uh, the third desire uh, that needs to be pruned, and I'll slow down after this, uh, is pathos. It's out-of-control ambitions. Out-of-control ambitions, these are things that drive us, uh, and we have put them on the mantle of our soul as the object of our worship. Pathos. Uh, these are out-of-control ambitions. And usually, these out-of-control ambitions are focused upon ourselves. They're usually focused upon our own pleasures. They're usually focused on the things that we think are going to make us happy. And we don't really care what God has to say about it or what God desires about it. We're going to be pursuing what we want. Okay? And whatever God has to say is okay for God, but it, it doesn't apply to me because I've got my own ambition here. They're out of out-of-control ambitions. Uh, the one, two, three. The fourth one is, and this is very technical language, okay, so y'all need to hold on tight. Very technical language. It is an hankering for bad stuff. Y'all know what a hankering is? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the Greek there is, is evil desire. Kake uh, epithumia. And thumiane, and and so it's a it's a it's it's a desire that is just bad. It's just it's bad stuff, but we want it. You know, it, it's it's a hankering. It, I don't know if y'all know. You know, biscuits. If if biscuits were bad for me, they're not. But if they were, I would have a hankering for a biscuit, right? And 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 a hankering doesn't even begin to describe it because if I was told that that biscuit was bad for me, I'd have a hankering for that biscuit and I'd start thinking about that biscuit. I'd be thinking about that biscuit when I went woke up in the morning. I'd be thinking, I need some, mm, I need a biscuit. But they tell me it's bad for me. But I want a biscuit, so I'm going to go get a biscuit. And then and then I have one biscuit, but one biscuit just won't do me because I need another biscuit. And I go through my day and I'm thinking all the time about that biscuit. And I'm going to go get me another biscuit because that biscuit. They say it's bad for me. I don't care. I want that biscuit. And I think about the biscuit all day long. I have a couple of biscuits in the middle of the day, and then I, I, I come home at night, and you know what I'm hankering for. You know what I'm hankering for. What am I hankering for? I want a biscuit, so I'm going to go get me another biscuit. And they say that's bad for you, but I don't care if it's bad for me. I know I'm not supposed to eat. I know the doctor said I shouldn't eat, but I want it because I have a hankering for the biscuit. And then I go to bed at night, and I start counting biscuits in my sleep. That's evil desire. Now, biscuit is a metaphor for something else, right? 
So we have, uh, we have immorality, we have uh, filthy thoughts, we have, uh, uh, the third one was uh, out-of-control ambitions, the fourth is a hankering for bad stuff, and then the fifth one is, uh, your translation probably says covetousness, covetousness. It's a Greek term, and covetousness is probably right, but our understanding of covetousness is a little bit skewed. Uh, covetousness is greed, yes, but it's an insatiable selfishness. Insatiable selfishness. I am so focused on what I want to satisfy what I desire that I will disregard God, I'll disregard my family, I'll disregard my friends, I'll disregard my church. I don't care. I want what I want covetousness. The reason all of these things are trouble is because, and death dealing is because they're idolatry. That, that which is idolatry phrase applies to all five uh, death dealing desires. Each one of them has a characteristic of idolatry attached to it because we're exalting ourselves or something above God. God doesn't matter, only I matter. And it kills us. So we have these death dealing desires that need to be Pruned. Second category, uh, down in verse 8, begins, Paul says, now these are the things that you need to put off or put away. Anger and wrath. And those are destructive emotions and abusive emotions. Destructive emotions. Anger is a settled disposition that we have of frustration and vexation because somebody didn't meet our expectations. The anger here is not the kind of righteous indignation you have over injustice in the world. You know, Jesus was angry uh, in the temple, and he turned over the tables, and he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. Now, that's, that's a righteous indignation. That, that, was, that was Jesus in pursuit of justice. And by the way, most of us are not equipped uh, to have such a, uh, a pure heart that we can be angry toward others like that with a certainty that we have righteous anger. Most of us uh, get angry because somebody doesn't meet our expectations. Right? That, that's why we get angry. Uh, we get angry because people don't meet our expectations. The confusing thing about that is we're expecting them to meet our expectations. We think that if they meet our expectations, then somehow I'll be happy. Again, it is subtle, but it is something we need to understand that anger has as its root a selfish desire for satisfaction from source other than Christ. Most anger is built on the idea that somebody else is responsible to make me happy. Now, I've got to tell you, I, 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 I understand not meeting expectations. I understand that. I wake up every morning knowing that there are at least two or three hundred people whose expectations I have failed to meet that day. Maybe more. I understand about unmet expectations. The question is not, does someone not meet my expectations? The question is, why are you expecting them to? Why do you depend upon them to satisfy something in your soul that only Christ can do? See, I'm not your life. I'm not even your priest. Y'all realize the difference, right? I don't, I'm not even life-giving sacramental person to you. I'm just a preacher dude. I'm just a guy like you are. Um, 
I do not have a supernatural ability to satisfy you. Your spouse, as wonderful as they are, as intimately as they perhaps even know you, is incapable of satisfying you. They weren't made that way. But what happens is we get frustrated. And that frustration, we start listening to the wrong voice, start making the wrong choice. We end up in a sorry place where we start treating people with disrespect because they don't meet our expectations. We're angry. Now, the problem with anger is anger and using a different metaphor and borrowing a little bit of a phrase from some other source. Anger is like me drinking poison thinking it's going to hurt you. Right? So anger, anger is destructive because it, it's an emotion that destroys me. If I'm angry because of unmet expectations, then, then that settled disposition of vexation and frustration is only going to hurt me. It's toxic toward me. But that settled anger will eventually or could eventually lead to wrath. Wrath is where I take the anger I feel here and I spread it out there. It's an outburst. It's where, it's where I'm hurting mad about it, so I'm going to hurt you. I, I'm, I'm going to punch you in the nose in a lot of different ways, metaphorically. I, I'm going to hurt you. I learned this long ago as a pastor because um, pastors sometimes are easy targets for, for uh, outbursts of wrath. I learned this a long time ago. Most of the time, people are, are mean or mad at me. It rarely has something to do with me. I, rarely. Sometimes it does. But rarely is it about me. Most of the time, it's about some hurt they've got going on, that they're angry about something, an unmet expectation, and perhaps years of unmet expectations. Now, if you're that person, that is blowing up and has this boiling rage toward other people. Now, by the way, boiling rage does not necessarily mean boisterous rage. Wrath doesn't have to be loud. Laugh, uh, 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 wrath can be surreptitious and sneaky. It's where we're taking our anger and we're trying to hurt somebody else. That's wrath. So if we're going to thrive, we need to chop off anger and wrath. We need, to, we need to cut off, prune this destructive emotion. So we have death-dealing uh, desires that need to be pruned. We have destructive emotions that need to be pruned. And the third thing we need to prune is abusive words. Now, up to this point, most of us as regular church-going folk, we will not acknowledge, number one, as any part of our life although it is. Statistics show clearly, even number one, if not in real time, at least in virtual space, on the net and on the web, number one is dominant factor, even in this church, even in this gathering. Now, you might be so respectful, you're not going to acknowledge destructive or death-dealing desires. I hope you do. Uh, you might not even acknowledge that you have anger and rage, uh, wrath issues. You might, you might not say, well, that's not me. But when it comes to abusive words, it's going to hit all of us. 
So we need to prune our abusive words. Now, Paul uses clear language in talking about abusive words. First one, first word he uses is malice. This is verse 8. Malice. Malice is uh, the Greek term that describes me using my words in a vicious way to hurt somebody else. I have, I have a ferocious need to hurt someone with my words. So I do that. It, it's, uh, it, it, and the idea, by the way, the idea, whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is lying. The writer of Proverbs clearly says that we have words that bring health and life to people, and we have words that cut like a knife and pierce like a spear. And if you are using your words to cut like a knife or pierce like a spear, then you need to stop it. No way to thrive and have malice, abusive words. Second word he uses is maybe you have a, an old King James Version, and it's blasphemy. And literally, it is the word for blasphemy. But the way Paul uses it and the context he uses it, he's not talking about us speaking bad things against God. That's not what he's doing. He's using it in another meaning, which is part of the meaning. Maybe your translation uses it, slander. Uh, that the term there uh, describes us using our words in a way to um, to put a bad light on somebody, to hurt them, to put a bad light on them. It's it's us using our words to belittle them and and put them in a bad, uh, give them a bad reputation. Have you ever used your words to belittle somebody? to push them down? Have you ever used your words to, to talk with disrespect? Now, here's what we do. And by the way, can I, this is part of the application, but I may not get there. Can I say this? If right now you're trying to rationalizing, rationalize the things you say based upon like, something like this, well, I can say that because of what he did. I have a right to my opinion. I'm just speaking the truth. Okay, here's the problem with that. Number one, if you rationalize it by saying, uh, I have a right to my opinion, the Bible clearly says you may have a right to your opinion, but your opinion may be sinful, and your words most definitely are. You cannot use your words to belittle someone, to harm their reputation. Okay, that's number one. Number two, you might say, well, uh, not, uh, I, I have a right to my opinion or, or say, I, I'm just telling the truth. You may be telling the truth, but your motivation is to hurt somebody. And that puts you in sin. It puts you in sin. When your motivation is to hurt somebody or, or to make yourself look better by demeaning somebody else or, or, or uh, if your motivation is to kick them so that you can get them out of your way and you can have your way. If that's your goal, then make no mistake, you're in sin. You're sinning against holy God. And you need to prune that. So we've got malice, using your words like a knife. We've got uh, blasphemy, uh, demeaning people. We've got filthy language out of your mouth. Filthy language out of your mouth. This is a unique word in the Greek. It's one word in the Greek. 
Um, and, and you might think, well, he's talking about cussing, you know, saying cuss words. No, he's not really talking about cuss words. He's talking in context. He's talking about where we use our words to shame somebody else. Uh, this is uh, an instrument used by people who are uh, uh, great at passive-aggressive stuff. They, they use their words to, to shame someone. I'm going to try to make you feel bad by the words I use, or I'm going to try to paint you in the corner with shame. My words are leaking with condemnation and judgmentalism. And the goal is for you to be in that corner so that I feel good about myself or so that I can have my way or so that I can get what I want and so that you just sit in the corner and stay silent. See, when we use our words to bring shame to somebody else, we're sinning against God and we need to prune it. And the last, uh, the last uh, uh, abusive word that we need to stop is, is uh, uh, Paul said, stop lying. Stop lying. Do not deceive any longer. Deception chases away intimacy and community. The same way that a drought will chase away life. They will not coexist. You're lying to your wife. You're lying to your husband. You're lying to your, to your uh, small group. You're lying to, to, to people around you. You're lying all over the place. You're telling stories that aren't true. And you think you're going to have intimacy. You think you're going to have community. You think you're going to thrive. Friends, you're buying a lot. It's not going to happen. Stop lying. If we're going to thrive, we've got to prune. The only way to thrive is to prune. Now, how does this work in our marriages? What is the thrive principles in our marriages? As, as we look at this passage, a couple of things that I would just share, okay? Um, and and these, are, these are quick and, and they're easy uh, to, to understand. The first one is, it, it all starts with surrender. To set your mind on things above. To seek that which is above means that you surrender that which is below. To seek the things above means that you surrender the things that are below. It, to seek the things above means that you're surrendered yourself to Christ. You're completely and wholly given over to Him, what He wants, His pleasure. And you are surrendering your own ambition, desire, etc. In marriage... In our marriage relationship, guys, it begins with surrender. Where I, it, my, my wife won't go with me or my husband won't go with me. It doesn't matter. I'm taking responsibility. Today, I surrender. I surrender my pleasure on the altar of Christ. And I give all that I am to him. I live as the Apostle Paul said, I, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to live today in relationship with my husband or my wife. I'm going to live today surrendered to Jesus Christ so that I look more like Jesus than I do Eric Thomas. That's where it begins. You start seeking the things above, not the things below. You start setting your focus, your perspective on the things above. You start taking seriously the fact that your words and your actions reflect on Jesus. And you're going to honor Jesus in this relationship, and you're going to surrender the rights, your perceived rights, for your way or your pleasure or even your happiness, and you're going to say, all to thee, Jesus, I surrender. And you're going to let him take care of your happy, happy, happy. When you surrender to Jesus, you are saying very simply that, Jesus, I give you my everything. Jesus, babe, you are my everything. You are everything to me. I surrender all to you. It begins with surrender. And some of you are here today. Are you ready to surrender? Guys, it's got to start now. It starts with surrender. Now, some of you are here and you're saying, well, I don't think I need to surrender all that much. Oh, yes. We all need to surrender. All that we are. It starts with surrender. Secondly, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Here's the problem. Some of us will leave this place and we act like everything's hunky-dory. And we're not going to take time to ask our spouse whether or not any of this made sense to them. We're just going to press on like everything's hunky-dory. Friends, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You look at your life and there are death-dealing desires. And you might not admit it out loud yet, but you look at those five death-dealing desires and you can see yourself in some of them. You look at those five death-dealing desires and you recognize that some of them apply to you. Friends, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You understand that there are some some uh, destructive emotions that you have going on based upon unmet expectations that you get filled with anger and you start exploding in wrath and you start de destroying inside you and you start harming and hurting other people around you and, and you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. You look at the way you talk to people, the way you talk to your wife or your husband or your children, the way you talk about people, hear me, the way you talk about people, and you act like it doesn't matter, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. We're, we're in this place today where God has given us the grace to repent and start fresh. It's not an overnight journey of healing and restoration and wholeness. It's, it's not an overnight journey. But it's a journey that begins today.
the last thing I'd say is we need to call each other out on our toxic life. It's real simple. My wife has permission to call out the toxic in my life every time she sees it. The funny thing is my girls have gotten to the age where now they're calling me out on my toxic life. The proverb says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Some of you have been sitting around your friends in this church and you've listened to their toxic words and you have let them go and you haven't said a word, you've just remained silent. That needs to stop today. You need to call each other out on toxic words. You've watched your, your, your husband stand on the precipice of the cliff ready, ready to just plunge into ruin and you've sat there in silence because you're afraid he's going to be mad if you say something. Don't be afraid any longer. Today, be honest. Call him out. Last night, Edie and I were sitting, um, and Mallory and, and Elizabeth, we were sitting in the, uh, eating dinner, and uh, I asked Edie to list the things that I needed to work on in my marriage. She started the list. And once, once she got started, it wasn't like she could stop. <laughs> she kept going and going and going. I, I needed to hear it. And she was calling out certain things in my life that needed to be called out. When I finally stopped her, She looked at me and she said, now, honey, she said, I have no interest in hearing the things that I need to improve on. <laughs> and I said, oh, baby, there's no list. And I know, stop lying. Anyway, <laughs> look, we need to call each other out. The healthier the marriage the more honest you'll be. And the only way to start the journey to health is to begin with honesty today. Today, it's a hard message. It's not easy. It's tough. But if we prune, we will thrive.